You are now listening to the October 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, heart and soul gospel ministry listeners. I am Joseph McDonald, the host of a new program focused on a special privilege we enjoy as Christians. This is Forgiveness. Last time, we started to think about forgiveness by looking at the life of Joseph as recorded in Genesis. His father Jacob loved Joseph, the youngest he had at the time more than any of his other sons. For that, Joseph's older brothers hated him. They would eventually even consider killing him. If the setting of Joseph's story was like one we would typically find in a children's storybook, where there is a clear protagonist facing off a bunch of antagonists, we could say that Joseph would be the hero figure and his brothers would be the villains. Of course, it's not that simple. In Joseph's older brother's point of view, they were also Jacob's sons, just as Joseph was. They might have agonized over why their father would single out Joseph as his favorite. In some sense, it's quite understandable why they would be jealous of Joseph. They also craved for their father's love. The underlying issue was that of the four wives he had, their father Jacob loved only one. Rachel. He did not love Leah, Zilpah, or Bilhah, who bore him his other sons. That is why Jacob loved Joseph. It was the one son he had with Rachel. From the perspective of the other sons, the situation was not fair and they felt resentful. Who among them would have wanted to be sons of the woman their father did not love? Wouldn't they have wanted to be sons of a woman their father loved if they had the choice? Needless to say, they all desperately longed for their father's love. Yet, they could not detect any love from their father from the way he acted toward them and the way he looked at them. They grew up in their share of disappointments and pain in this imperfect household with complicated human feelings. From the perspective of the boy Joseph, His brother's attitude toward him could have been puzzling, the way they behaved jealously and the way they seemed hostile toward him. Having read the Bible, we understand the circumstances that led his brothers to behave negatively toward Joseph. Of course, having a reason of their own does not justify what they eventually did to Joseph. They committed a despicable act to an unsuspecting younger brother. Let's now go back to the scene where Joseph travels to Shechem, following his father's instructions to check up on his older brothers. His father wanted to know how they were doing and how they were taking care of the flock of sheep they were looking after. Joseph was finally drawing near their location, and the brothers saw him while he was still far away. The appearance of Joseph was not a welcome sight for them. Let's take a look at what happened next. Here is Genesis chapter 37, verses 18 through 20. 
When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. What did they decide to do when they saw their younger brother Joseph was approaching? Verse 18 says they plotted against Joseph. What could have caused them to hate their own younger brother so much that they would want to kill him? From verse 19 and 20, we see that they deeply resented Joseph's dreams. His dreams must have aroused such hatred in their hearts. Seeing Joseph approach them, they mocked Joseph as the dreamer and talked among themselves to see how his dreams would become real if they were to get rid of him once and for all. What was Joseph's dream? It was a dream that showed Joseph as the ruler of his brothers. Joseph's brothers were already resentful that Joseph received Jacob's undivided love. Things got worse when Joseph told them that in the dream, he had all the brothers bowing down to him. It was like adding fodder to the fire. It enraged them to the point where it caused them to consider killing him. However, what is important here is that they had no idea Joseph's dream came from God. In fact, when Joseph told the dream he had to his brothers and father in Genesis 37, his brothers and his father responded differently. Genesis chapter 37 verse 11 tells us this, His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. It says that his brothers became jealous of Joseph when they heard about his dream, but his father Jacob kept it in his mind. Keeping it in mind meant that Jacob knew it was not an ordinary dream and considered that it might have come from God. So he looked forward to God's working on this matter. Joseph's brother's jealousy, in fact, went beyond simply wanting to kill him. It was, in essence, an attempt to prevent God's plan. Of course, at the time, they had no idea they were going up against God. We must remember that when we have jealousy or hatred toward someone, it may not end at just harboring a negative sentiment toward that person. We must remember that it could cause us to commit a terrible sin. We might end up interfering with God's divine plan. Fortunately, they withdrew their initial plot to kill Joseph when the fourth brother, Judah, said to them, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? We witness here the instance of how people may plan their ways, but nothing will be accomplished without God's permission. In the end, they sold Joseph to the Midianite merchants that happened to be passing by that area. They then took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in the blood, and showed it to Jacob, lying to him that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. How did Jacob react to his son's lies and their evil deeds? Genesis 37, 33-35 record how Jacob reacted when he saw Joseph's blood-soaked tunic. Then he exclaimed it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. 
So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. His beloved Rachel had already passed away. By then, Jacob had another son, Benjamin, whom Rachel gave birth to before she died. As we shared last time, Rachel was the only wife Jacob really loved. She gave him Joseph and Benjamin, and he considered them as the only sons and loved them. His beloved wife was dead, and now his beloved son Joseph was gone. So he refused to be comforted and mourned for his son's death, wishing he were also dead to be with his son where he was. Jacob's son's evil deed led to an unintended consequence. Yes, it hurt Joseph as they wanted, but it also hurt their father Jacob immensely. It caused the loss of their father's happiness in life. Do you think what they did was forgivable? If you were Joseph, or if you were Jacob, what would you do with them for committing such an evil act? Forgiveness. It seems an obvious concept, yet mysterious. We will continue next time.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Rich in Faith. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. Now, Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew with this Sermon on the Mount that goes from chapters 5 to 7. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five discourses that are the major sort of breaks in the book of Matthew. You can actually read this sermon, chapters 5 to 7, in 10 minutes, which leads me to think that this is actually more of a kind of uh, bullet-pointed list of major points of the sermon. Uh, I'm guessing they didn't trek out into uh, onto this mountain to hear a sermon for 10 minutes and then, like, you know, sort of leave. I think, I think they probably had a lot of teaching on each one of these points. But as we look at this, you'll notice that this sermon begins with a, a kind of rapid-fire list of beatitudes that are marked by blessed are the, and we'll begin with poor in the spirit this morning, and he goes on and on. And they're giving and painting this picture of a happy life in the kingdom of God, what it looks like this side of heaven. Now you'll notice that each verse begins with blessed are the. And so uh, when you come to the Beatitudes, you might be looking at these and think to yourself, uh, these are the attitudes that I need to be being if I'm going to get blessings. Like, why are they called the Beatitudes? Well, the Beatitudes actually, that's not, these aren't the Beatitudes. Instead, uh, this comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means uh, someone who is happy, someone who is uh, in delight or blissful. Uh, It's the translation of that Greek word that you'll find behind blessing in your New Testament, makurios. And see, Jesus begins here teaching with an astonishing authority about how to live a happy life according to the kingdom of heaven. It is unlike the kingdoms of this earth. So let me make a few clarifications as we begin this series. First, as we talk about the happy life, we are not talking about a kind of trite, momentary, fleeting experience that you might have when you have a really good burrito. We're talking about a kind of happiness that comes deep, to our souls and works out that the kind of uh, sort of experience that might be encapsulated in the the Hebrew word shalom, it's a sense of peace and wholeness. We believe that Jesus has made us to be happy with him, to have a life that is flourishing. Second, you'll notice that Jesus is going to offer a different definition of a happy life that will challenge all of the metrics of this world. It will turn them upside down on their heads. Even this morning, you probably noticed that when we read the first beatitude, blessed or happy and flourishing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There really is a kind of paradox to the way the, the kingdom of heaven describes a happy life. So we hope this sermon causes all of us to really reevaluate. Are you hearing me? All of us, as we come to Christ, need to reevaluate the way that we are thinking about what a happy life is this side of Christ coming back. All of us, I believe, likely have ways in which we are determining whether or not we are happy based on wrong metrics, and we need Jesus to come in and to show us how it is that we are to view the world and others and evaluate true flourishing this side of Christ's return. Now, 
maybe you are in a better or a worse place than you knew when you come to this. But third, I just want to say out from the onset that I'm really indebted to Jonathan Pennington's work in the Sermon on the Mount and human flourishing. Uh, His work has really helped me uh, understand, I think, the language that's being used here for the Beatitudes. And he says that that these Beatitudes are pointing towards a a flourishing-oriented eschatological wisdom exhortation. And some of you are like, I just got lost. Don't worry, I'll catch you up. But the point is, is that they are futuristic and they speak to the way that we should live in the here and now. So first, our big idea is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are uh, poor in spirit. Uh, notice first in verse 1, he, we see uh, Jesus speaking to his audience. And so as I go through, what I really want to do is, is just have some questions and answers to help us understand where we are in this text. Uh, the first couple of questions we want to answer is this. Where is Jesus and who is his audience? Like, where is he and, and who is he speaking to? I think that's important. Now, you'll notice in verse 1, it says that seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain and then he sat down and his disciples came to him. Now, Jesus is on a mountain. That's where he is. I've been actually to the the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel. I visited the visitor center. Uh, They had some overpriced pots and stuff. I passed. But we really can't be sure where this mountain is exactly. We've guessed, but we don't know. Now, we may not be sure about the geography of this mountain, but it's hard to miss the theology of it. I mean, sure, practically there's a purpose for it, right? I mean, he's, he's got crowds around him, and he wants for all of them to be able to hear him. He's trying to get away to make sure his disciples particularly hear him. And so he goes up on this mountain, which is kind of like an amphitheater. But if you think about the history of mountains, we know that high places were often where gods would reveal themselves to humanity. And so here we find that that Jesus Christ is speaking from this high place, this mountain. In fact, if you read through Matthew, this is one of seven mountains in the book of Matthew. And these all are revealing the authority of King Jesus. You can't miss this at the very end of the book of Matthew. Chapter 28, the disciples come to Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, and he's on what? A mountain. And he begins by saying that he is speaking with what? All authority in heaven and on earth. He's not speaking like your typical rabbi. This is one who speaks with astonishing authority from beginning to end. Now, if you pan out, you'll remember that this isn't the only place in the Bible where we see important mountains. Uh, You'll remember Moses, who received the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. It's there that God delivered uh, what it was that he was requiring man to live by. And here, Jesus also looks like the one greater than Moses, who doesn't merely give the law, but fulfills the law. He is the one who has come to lead a new and greater exodus than what Moses led. He is the one who has come to usher in a new and greater kingdom. And he speaks with an unprecedented, astonishing authority that is greater than even Moses. Now, this dovetails nicely with who Jesus is speaking to. See, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and the crowds. The disciples and the crowds. I know when you look at verse 1, it looks like he's trying to escape the crowds, and I'm not saying he's not, but it seems almost like they leave the crowds behind and it's just the disciples. Those Jewish disciples, the 12 disciples. But if you flip to the very end of the sermon, chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, you can look there 
And it's really clear that it's not just the disciples because Matthew notes, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The crowds. The crowds is distinguished from the disciples. It says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. See, the group of pre-Pentecost disciples. This is before they had the Holy Spirit that's come at Pentecost in Acts 2, right? This disciple group likely included more than just the 12 Jewish disciples at this point. And in addition, we find crowds of Gentiles from the Decapolis. They are crowded around this mountain to hear from Jesus. And I love the difference between this picture and the picture of Moses at Sinai. Do you see it? You'll remember in Exodus, whenever Moses is going to Sinai, it is a terrifying picture. You find Moses coming with all of this smoke and fire and earthquakes. And, and Jesus and God there warns not uh, for anybody to break through to come into his presence because if he does, they will be consumed. Stay back. But catch this. Jesus here speaking on this mountain comes to teach and shape those who are following him, but also to invite an onlooking world to enter God's kingdom through God's king. And this is a time of mercy and grace. And still today, as we are going through these Beatitudes, I want us to be reminded that if you are a Christian, Jesus still wants to bring you joy and conviction through his words. He's speaking to his children, but he's not just speaking to his children and roping it off and saying, no one else is welcome to come and hear. No, he's, he's actually speaking to you who are far from God. And he's saying, this is what God's kingdom is like. It's different than the kingdoms of this earth. Come and see the goodness of your God. And you can only see this in the face of God's king, King Jesus, who is continually inviting you to leave the crowd of this world that is destined for destruction and come to the good king who offers eternal life and a kingdom where all things are set right for your good and for his glory. Isn't that the kingdom you want to be in? The answer is yes. There is no better kingdom. Here what we find is is that you have that invitation still today. So if you've been living for a kingdom in which you have found yourself all too easily satisfied with bleeding happiness, on one hand, or, or maybe on the other, tired, cynical, and dissatisfied, Jesus has come for you. But here's the question. Second, what is a beatitude? What's a beatitude? Well, the beatitudes are typically understand in, in a couple of ways. Okay, so some explain beatitudes as a divinely initiated blessing. So when it says blessed, you're thinking blessed by who? Well, it's speaking of God. Well, the other is an explanation that means that a, a beatitude is a state of flourishing or happiness. Now, these two are, are not different realities that are, are completely separate, but, but they do have different focuses that we want to look at. So we need to look at the language to understand how to interpret this. So beatitude, as I said before, it comes from a word that is a Latin translation of the Greek makurios. That's what you find behind your New Testament word blessed. Now that's why academics, when they talk about these, they call them the macarisms. Now some of you are like, I get really lost in languages. So let me give you a modern equivalent. If you're old enough to dance in the 90s, anybody here old enough to dance in the 90s? 
Like, is it okay to admit that at church? Yes, it is. Do you remember the song La Macarena? Some of you are like, yeah, I remember the dance. I could do it right now if you asked me. Well, La Macarena is a word that actually is Spanish for happy. It comes from the same root that we find this word blessed, macarism. And so anyone who remembers this dance, the Macarena, this, this song is really actually a good illustration of what we are not talking about. See, this song is, is, is actually not a good picture of biblical happiness. In fact, it's actually about a woman who's te- cheating on her boyfriend who's going off to war with other guys. That's a worldly picture of happiness. In fact, she's almost kind of like a parable for happiness according to the kingdoms of this world rather than the kingdom of God. Sort of like a character from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where all the names mean something. But here we see in the Beatitudes and elsewhere in Matthew a number of of Beatitudes. They're not just here in in our text. In fact, if you continue reading and you get to Matthew 11, 6, you'll notice that Jesus there again says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus. That's another beatitude. Uh, Beatitudes are elsewhere in the Bible. You'll see them in the Old Testament. For instance, the famed Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Another beatitude. Now, here's where Jonathan Pennington, I think, has helped me untangle this. What's going on? Is it divine blessing or is it human flourishing? Well, this word that is behind it is usually, as I said before, translated either blessed or happy. Now, blessed in the Old Testament comes from the word Baruch, which is a divine blessing. It carries this idea of divine favor. Happy is a rough equivalent of the Hebrew word ashray which means to be in a state of flourishing or shalom. It speaks of a holistic peace and happiness. So blessing and flourishing, they are related ideas, but I think it's important at the onset to understand what exactly Jesus is saying. And the Bible never speaks of someone flourishing without God's blessing, yet they are distinct realities. In fact, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, Ashrei is always translated for makurios, which means flourishing or happy. Now, you're like, that's a lot that you just said. What are you talking about? What I'm arguing here is that I believe that as you read the Beatitudes, what Jesus is giving you a picture of is what a life of human flourishing looks like in the kingdom of heaven until Jesus comes back. This was what it looks like to live a happy life according to God. See, these are happier, flourishing sort of another way to say this these beatitudes would be happier flourishing are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven but you can see how jesus beatitudes conflicted with every other model of human flourishing of his day now i don't know what you think about when you think about the ancient near east and the kind of people that jesus was preaching to but we know that he was preaching to jews jews who had this hope that a, a king would come and restore their what fortunes that, that they would become powerful again, that they would no longer be weak and abysmal, but that they would be strong and glorious. They longed for a king to come and do that. But they had kind of devolved in their waiting into thinking, maybe that was just like a spiritualization that we should be looking at, and maybe we should just understand that we're in a good place if we have money and health. And people that don't have money and health and wisdom, they're in a bad place. Well, that looks a lot like the wisdom of the world that was going in the day. That day that Isaiah saw that he promised us was coming, 
is here. Jesus is the great reversal that Isaiah 61 heralded. He has arrived. See, it's the poor in spirit, not the rich in self-sufficiency that are in a good place. It's those who are poor in spirit that are positioned well before God, not those who are boasting of their self-sufficiency, their lack of need. In fact, there might be those here today who, as you hear the gospel, you are almost immune to it because you have no idea of your neediness for it. You think to yourself, you come in before you even hear a thing from the preacher or from other Christians in the room. You say, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty successful at all the things we do. It seems like me and God are okay. I don't feel like I'm in a bad place. And yet, you're so far from God because you don't understand just how needy you are. Love what Ambrose said of this text. He says, this beatitude poor in spirit, it's not only the first in order, but it is also the one that in some way generates all the other virtues that he speaks about in these Beatitudes. In the same way that the first commandment, you remember, you shall have no other gods before me, it's kind of the first and foundational. It's also the fountain of all the rest. Anything else that you fail to do has failed to misunderstand step one, have no other gods. If I'm God, everything else changes. Every one of us must understand our neediness and helplessness. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our most righteous deeds are what? Filthy rags. And I could get into that, but just know that it's really gross. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, that's That's desperate. Are you hearing what he's saying? It's not just that you can't trust others. You can't trust your own heart. Or what about Romans 3, 11 to 12, where Paul quotes Psalm 14? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together, catch this, they have become worthless. Now, who is Paul speaking of there? Well, he's speaking of everybody left to themselves, worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, here's how needy we are. You can't help yourself because you were dead in your uh, trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Worthless. We were dead. We can't trust our own hearts. We're not in a good place left to ourselves. Do we see that? That is the word that we hear from God throughout the pages of Scripture. Left to yourselves, you are destined for God's wrath. You are hopeless. You are helpless. The good news comes to those who understand their spiritual poverty before God. Do you get that? You're not ready for the good news until you understand the bad news about yourself and everything around you. Do you see your spiritual poverty before God? See, God created every human with inestimable value and worth. He created us in Genesis 1 after his image and likeness. He created every one of us that we might have dominion over 
the earth. We were meant to be regal in the eyes of God, reflecting his glorious character, all of creation. But we sinned. And here's the sad exchange that we made in that sin that we did not know was coming. Rather than getting more like Satan promised, we received worthlessness, helplessness, and we became desperately needy for God's grace and God's grace alone. See, John Calvin says the poor in spirit are those who see nothing in themselves, but fly to mercy for sanctuary. Have you flown to mercy for sanctuary? Have you made that flight? It is the most important journey you'll ever make. We are spiritual beggars, according to the scriptures. We have a debt that we cannot pay. As D.T. Niles famously quipped, Christianity is really just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Jesus is the bread of life. We don't make our own bread. There's no other store to go to get bread. If we don't get bread from Jesus, we starve and we die. We eat it. We enjoy it. We distribute it to those who are hungry. But like Israel in the desert, we wake up every morning and go back to Jesus for more bread that keeps us alive. Now let me apply this, this idea of spiritual poverty to four different groups. And please hear me, I, I don't ever break up the congregation into poor and rich, save poor and save rich, not save poor, not save rich. But I believe that as I look at Luke and Matthew that, that there needs to be some heart work done. I, I want to kind of get in each of our skins and think through how we should be thinking about poverty of spirit. So you can be financially rich or poor and poor in spirit. Did y'all hear me? You, you can be financially rich or poor and poor in spirit. That's one. Also, you can be financially poor and either poor in spirit or not. Like, both of those realities work. It'll become hopefully clear as we, we move through. But you can be financially rich or poor and rich in self-sufficiency and not have the poor in, poorness in spirit that Jesus calls for. So we're going to look at each one of these first. The physically poor who are not poor in spirit. See, poverty should be an advantage according to God's economy. Did you see that? There, there's a real sense in which those who do not have many material blessings have sort of a, a shorter line to experiencing desperate need for what God can provide. Now, this verse doesn't say the financially poor are automatically favored by God. That's not what it's saying. Some have looked at this and said that. It's not what Jesus is saying. See, some are poor because they are lazy, according to the Scriptures. You remember in Proverbs? Consider the ant, O sluggard, and what? Learn some stuff about working. Like, don't be lazy. And then Paul tells Timothy... An able-bodied man who doesn't provide for his family has abandoned the faith. Now, here's why I think that's important. Paul is telling Timothy, catch this, you might think that maybe there's some who have like hyper-spiritualized Christianity to the point that they think, oh, I don't have to work, I don't have to get a job, I don't have to provide for a family. And he says, no, you've like actually missed the faith if that's your doctrine. See, some are poor for good reasons, like being born in generational poverty bad break or sickness. All kinds of reasons can make you put in the good effort and yet end up poor. But to be honest with you, most of us don't fit into this group compared to the rest of the world. 
And let me just encourage you this morning to know that there is nothing that really defines your worth more than your relationship to Christ and how God sees you in the eyes of Christ. So often we attempt to hide our weaknesses and fail to ask for help when we need it because we want people to think more of us based on worldly standards. So many Americans live paycheck to paycheck and look wealthy on the outside. Well, here are these two things. First, our church doesn't believe that God's love for you or your worth is measured by your earthly possessions. You are loved by God. God gave His Son for you. He gave the most valuable thing in the universe for you. That's the value that you have before God. That's the value that you have as part of the family of God. You don't need to keep up with the Joneses. See, God loves each one of us because of Christ's work, not our own. And that is grounded in Christ's work on our behalf. See, when you go to the cross, I know it might be on a hill like the hill of Calvary, but, but it is absolutely level for all of us. We all equally needed Jesus on a cross. And second, contentment begins, for those of us who don't have much, with cultivating a sense of being poor in spirit. See, Paul learned to be content in times of plenty and times of want. Now, you might be thinking, okay, I'm there with you. I want to be content with what I have. I want to trust and pray for more, but trust, trust God with where I'm at. What do I do? How do I cultivate this? Well, here's how Paul did it in Philippians. He understood himself to be the chief of sinners. Do you see the math there? That is poor in spirit. He does not elevate himself and say, I'm not as bad as the rest of guys, but I don't have more. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Everything from here out is gravy. I didn't deserve any of it. See, Paul learned to be content in times of plenty and want by understanding who he was before Christ and his desperate need. See, sometimes we, we think that we deserve more or need more because we don't see how much we've been given in Christ. See, he understood his spiritual bankruptcy before God and it taught him contentment when he was rich and poor. What about the physically rich who are poor in spirit? Be careful not to allow your riches to insulate you from your sense of being poor in spirit. Riches can do that. They can be protective against sensing that you are needy, that you are desperate. It can make us think that we are safe in ways that we are not. Because in God's economy, spiritual wealth, material wealth, actually, catch this, puts us at a disadvantage. Did you see that? Spiritual, like, sort of poverty is a good thing. Material wealth can actually be to our detriment. doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to be successful or to have money, but it can be a dangerous thing for our soul. I don't think Notorious B.I.G. really understood the truth of his statement, mo money, mo problems. He didn't understand the half of it. If you love God, there are all kinds of other problems that creep into your heart because of material wealth pulling you towards this world rather than towards the, heaven, the, the kingdom of God in heaven. See, arrogance can grow swiftly in the soil of wealth. God warned the church of Laodicea of the dangers of wealth in Revelation 3.17. Do you remember that? It's there that the angel says, for you say, I am rich, those in this church. I have prospered and I need nothing. Do you see what's happened there? Material wealth, prosperity, has begun to have a spiritual impact on them such that they no longer see their need before God. 
So if you think that material things don't have any kind of spiritual pull, read Revelation 3.17. He says, you're not realizing in your thoughts that you have need of nothing, that you're actually from God's perspective, a spiritual perspective, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, faith helps us see that earthly riches, they are a quickly depreciating commodity. They are, what? Passing away forever. And they are giving way to an eternal kingdom. And that's why Jesus says later in the sermon, you need to build up treasures in heaven because this stuff's going away. You don't want to find yourself bankrupt in heaven. Not that that's a thing. We'll talk about it later. But guard your heart against trusting in your possessions and losing sight of your spiritual neediness. I love the statement by Lady Huntington, who was writing to the late great pastor John Wesley. And she was thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, that says, not many noble are called. And she said, I am going to heaven through the letter M. Why? Well, how grateful I am that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 did not say, not any noble are called, but rather not many with an M noble are called. That was her way of saying, I'm getting through by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, a godly saint who is generous all of her days. Don't let earthly riches obstruct your neediness, your view of your neediness now, and the value of the throne that awaits. The stuff here, don't get satisfied. The best is yet to come. It's an unperishable, undefiled, eternal kingdom. So if the Lord's blessed you, be generous. Be generous is an expression of the fact that I am not clinging to these things. Spend a lot of time in God's word and with God's people and in prayer, reminding yourself of your neediness before God. But what about the physically rich who are not poor in spirit? You know, this wealth can make you blind your own spiritual poverty. It can make it difficult to feel your need for resources that only Jesus can provide. Now, I'm not saying, please hear me, as a pastor, that you need to go sell all that you have to follow Jesus. But Jesus did once face a rich young man who was really righteous in Matthew 19, and he told him to do just that. So he asked what else he needed to have eternal life, this rich young man did. And Jesus told him, sell all you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, let me just say this. If the physical Jesus ever comes before you, and tells you face to face to sell all you have and come follow him, and you don't do that, you're dumb. Like Jesus, you do what Jesus says, right? That was given specifically to him. But in Matthew 19, 22, when the young man heard this, it says that he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. This young man insulated himself with his own righteousness. I've kept all the commandments since I was a child. I'm really good. And his own riches. And he did not see his spiritual poverty when he was confronted with Jesus Christ face to face. He had the whole world, but lacked this one thing, Jesus, and therefore he had nothing in the kingdom of heaven. Is that you? Your riches, obscuring your view of Jesus, making you feel safe, they can't rescue you from death. They can't rescue you from the wrath that awaits. So what do you need to do? You need to repent and believe in Christ. See, here's the, the, the formula that helps you grow in poverty of spirit. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that for you by his poverty you might become rich. See, the eternal Son of God stooped to take on flesh to live the perfect life of righteousness that we could not, to pay the debt that we could not, and he died on the cross for our sins to bring us peace with God. And he was raised from the dead to declare victory to those who put their faith in him. Everything that we receive, spiritually or material, is because of God's free gift to us of an imperishable, unfading kingdom that awaits those who are in Christ. And what is that kingdom? Well, notice he gives a promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk more about this in week eight. Uh, This is repeated in week eight. In fact, you'll notice that each beatitude is followed by a promise. The first and the eighth are actually a repeat of theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another difference is, is that everything in between, that sandwiched in between is all in the future. But this says this is a present reality for those who are poor in spirit. R.T. France observes that the kingdom of heaven in this book actually functions virtually as a slogan for the whole scope of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew. See, the kingdom of heaven, it's highlighting how different the kingdom of God is from the kingdoms of this earth. See, the kingdom of God is better. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for this kingdom in heaven to come and to be fully amongst us on earth. And then give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Don't miss this. I take it that the present tense here teaches that there is an already not yet reality of the kingdom for true believers. There is a sense in which those in Christ are already citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I know some think that There's going to be a thousand-year literal reign on earth, and some think that all that we're waiting is a new heavens or a new earth. But here's one thing that I can say. If Jesus is king, he is king of your life today. Now, we are already citizens of heaven, but not yet fully what we shall be when Jesus returns. Jesus' current reign over us is over those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as God's king. In fact, Matthew's gospel uniquely focuses his gospel and the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he talks about, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, you might be thinking, why is he talking about the gospel of the kingdom? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll understand more. In the Old Testament, what we find is is that the Jews understood that Adam and Eve, they lived in a flourishing garden in the presence of God with unhindered relationship. It was glorious. That is what all of us ultimately were made for and longed for. That is why all of us, in some sense, even in Christ, are dissatisfied and longing for what is to come. Now, you can respond to that longing in sinful or godly ways. But Adam sinned, and he was cast out of the garden. And the rest of the Bible really is about, how do we get back to Shalom? How do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to where we work the way that we were supposed to? The world works the way that it was supposed to. The way that we have that freedom of uninhibited communication with God. We find throughout a number of covenants that God promises that he's going to work through a king. And in 2 Samuel 7, he says that king is going to come from the line of David. One day, he promises in 2 Samuel 7, there is a great Davidic king who is coming, and I am going to put my spirit on him, and he will reign over the nations forever. 
And we find out who that king is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. When Matthew is very careful to begin saying that this is the beginning of what? It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and the son of Abraham. It is the genesis of the new creation that is breaking out. It begins with Jesus, who is God's king. He promised the king. The king has arrived. His name is Jesus. See, we've been trying to get back to that flourishing reality. And when Jesus shows up on that mountain, he says, the gates are open wide. New creation is breaking out. And it begins with how you approach God's king. And I am that king. See, one day God's kingdom will fully touch down on earth and all things will be on earth as they are in heaven. But until then, we know that we might look poor in the eyes of the world. But we are rich according to God's eyes. And those are the eyes that matter. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we praise you that you have sent your son. We praise you that uh, we are destined for a, a future and better kingdom. Father, we praise you that we can trust that if we have put our faith in Christ, that we are already citizens of the kingdom that is coming. Lord, I pray that if there are those here today who their eyes have been obscured to the, the goodness of Jesus because of wealth, because of pride, Lord, that you would give them eyes to see the glories of Christ. That you would give them eyes to see that earthly riches do not compare with what he has for us. Father, for those who are poor, I pray that you would provide for their needs. I pray that you would bless and keep them. But Lord, I also ask that those who are poor outside of Christ, Father, that you would help them to see that financial poverty is not nearly as bad as spiritual poverty and not knowing your son Christ and the salvation that they need and can only have in him. Help them to see not just their financial neediness, but their spiritual neediness. And Father, for all of us, help us to see Christ as king. There is none like him. No one speaks with his authority. It's his name we do pray. Sweetly distills it.
following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time, we saw how Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, and how Lot was saved through grace from Genesis chapter 19. Today, we'll look into Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20 records an astonishing incident. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham once again said his wife was his sister and his wife was taken away. First, I'll read Genesis chapter 20 verses 1 through 2. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. From here, we can see that Abraham has moved. He lived in the tent where the trees of Mamre were, but he moved to a place that was southwest of there. Abraham said Sarah was his sister, so king Abimelech of Gerar sent someone to take Sarah away. Let's think for a moment. Sarah is quite old now. Abraham is 99 years old, and Sarah is 10 years younger than him, so she is 89 years old. Even so, Abimelech took Sarah away. Why did he take her? Was it because she was beautiful? This is how I see it. If we think that King Abimelech took Sarah because she was beautiful, then this is our preconceived notion. If we look at Genesis chapter 12, it tells us the reason why Abraham called Sarah his sister. It was clearly because she was beautiful. When they entered Egypt, the officials told the news to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh called her to the palace. Abraham was treated very well. However, it is a different case for Abimelech. First, there is no mention of Sarah's beauty. It doesn't say the people of Gerar were surprised by Sarah's beauty or that Abimelech took her after seeing her appearance. It simply says Abraham called his wife Sarah his sister, so King Abimelech of Gerar sent someone to take her away. If we look at the conversation between Abimelech and God who appeared that night, we can assume that Abimelech did not take Sarah because of her beauty. I'll read verses 3 through 4. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Then Abimelech said, I have not gone near her. If Abimelech took Sarah because of her appearance, he would have already touched her. However, he didn't touch her and was asleep, and God appeared in his sleep. Also, in verse 5, Abimelech says, I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. We don't know exactly what this means, but we know that he didn't do it out of his fleshly greed. Let's think about Abraham's household. 
About 20 years ago, when Lot was captured by King Kido Laomer's United Army, Abraham took 300 trained men born in his household and destroyed the United Army. In addition to Lot, he saved all the captives of Sodom and Gomorrah. If Abraham already had 300 trained men from his household 20 years ago, how many people are living in his household after 20 years have passed? I'm sure there were many more people. Also, Abraham had great wealth. Gerar was more of a city than a nation, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were cities. Let's think about it. Let's say a family of great wealth with a few hundred people in the household pitched a tent and began living in your city. Furthermore, you heard news in the past that this family destroyed a united army of great power during battle. This would have caused a great burden to Abimelech. In the land where King Abimelech lived, a large group of people entered and began living in a tent. There were numerous people in the household. Some even say there were more than a thousand. When Abraham's family entered and began living there, it would have been a great threat to Abimelech. What is the easiest way to lessen the threat? It would be a political marriage. Marrying Abraham's family, consisting of many members, would bring peaceful relations. Therefore, it could be assumed that Abimelech married Sarah for political reasons, such as maintaining peaceful relations rather than her appearance. For this reason, Abimelech might have told God that he took Sarah with a clear conscience and clean hands. In verse 6, God says, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. In verse 7, God tells Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham, for he is a prophet. This is where the word prophet first appears in the Bible. A prophet is a person who has received God's divine revelation. Abraham was the first prophet. After God explained that Abraham was a prophet, he said, Abraham will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. The next morning, Abimelech told everything to his servants. In Genesis chapter 20, verse 9, he calls Abraham and rebukes him. When God's people do not live as God's people, there are times when God uses foreigners to rebuke them. Jonah is an example. When Jonah ran away to Tarshish and was sleeping on the boat, the captain came to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Jonah was in spiritual sleep. He didn't seek God, and Abraham was the same way. When the king rebuked Abraham by saying, You have done things to me that should never be done, it was like God's voice telling Abraham that he didn't trust God and did what was right in his mind. Let's think about it. There is definitely a difference between Abraham having his wife Sarah taken away right now and having her taken away in Egypt in the past. In Egypt, Abraham received God's promise of having a child, but the promise wasn't very specific. It was a promise saying that he would have a child one day. However, it is different now.
God already said that Abraham would have a child next year around this time. A few weeks ago, I told you to remember this part. If Sarah were to have a child next year around this time, then she would have to become pregnant within the next two months. If so, Sarah has to become pregnant with Abraham's child, but she is with another man. Abraham made a very big mistake. Not only was it a mistake, but it shows how Abraham didn't fully listen to God's word. Let's look at how Abraham responds to Abimelech who rebuked him. I'll read verses 11 through 13. Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Let's think about Abraham's response. Among the reasons why he said Sarah was his sister was because the region of Gerar, ruled by Abimelech, had no fear of God, and he was worried that he would be killed because of his wife. Sarah must have still looked beautiful to Abraham. It seems like Abraham was worried about being killed by the people because of Sarah. Abraham said the people of Gerar had no fear of God, but that is contradictory. Abraham said he lied because the people of Gerar did not fear God. However, the one who didn't fear God is not the people of Gerar, but Abraham. It's because even though he heard from God that his wife Sarah will have a child next year around this time, he gave his wife, who needs to become pregnant, to another person. If Abraham listened to God's word and took it to heart, then he should have said, I will never give you my wife. My wife will give birth to a child next year around this time, so I can't give her to you. However, he was afraid of the people of Gerar and took God's word lightly. The Bible doesn't say whether Abraham was a sinner or not. However, his action deserved reproach. This is something to be thankful for. Although Abraham made a mistake, God didn't say, I said I would give you a son next year around this time, but you didn't believe me and had your wife taken away. The covenant no longer exists. Rather, God was solving the problem. In the same way, we have sinned after being saved. We have sinned a lot. Even so, salvation doesn't come and go every time we sin. God knows everything, so he knew Abraham would act this way. Despite Abraham's sinfulness, God chose him and molded him into the father of faith. We are the same way. God chose us even though he knows everything about us. Therefore, salvation is fulfilled through God and not us. We believe that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Of course this truth cannot be an excuse for us to be dull about sin. Through God's faithfulness, we have been chosen and led to salvation. We were able to confirm this again today. I hope we can be firmly held in His hands as we live this life. We'll end God of Abraham here. 
I'll see you next week. Goodbye. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.